You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello everyone and welcome to History of the Great War episode 224. This week, a big thank you goes out to Tristan for choosing to support this podcast on Patreon, where they now get special access to ad-free versions of all of these episodes, plus special Patreon-only episodes, like the real deep dive that we've been doing on the naval arms race that took place between Britain and Germany before the war. I would also like to thank Richard for their donation through PayPal. If you would like a no-strings-attached way to help contribute to the show, hit up the PayPal link that is in the show notes. The years after the First World War would see new countries created all over the world. We have discussed many areas of the world where this would occur, both in the podcast's episodes on the Paris Peace Conference and then the most recent episodes about the post-war world. Today we are making the last stop on this tour, Ireland. There had been a concerted effort by many Irish political leaders to push for greater autonomy from British leaders in London well before the First World War, and there was real movement taking place on it right before hostilities put a pause on everything. During the war, tensions would increase, leading to events like the Easter Rising, and then after the war was over, fighting would erupt first between the British and the Irish, and then between the Irish themselves. Today we're going to lay the groundwork for most of that fighting, before discussing the period of open conflict between the forces loyal to the British and the Irish. Then to close out this episode, we will discuss the treaty negotiations that would occur in London in late 1921 between the representatives of the new Irish leaders and Lloyd George and British leaders. This treaty, once it was signed, would set the stage for the fighting within Southern Ireland, which would then lead to the Irish Civil War. Some of the treaty's provisions, especially those related to the partition of Ireland, would then set the stage for antagonism and violence over the next several decades. At the time I'm writing this, which is early October 2019, this partition has once again come front and center in the politics of the United Kingdom and Ireland, almost a century after it was officially instituted. The most important piece of Irish politics before the war, at least for our story, were the debates around home rule. 
Home rule or just local autonomy for Ireland was a topic that gained support in the last decades of the 19th century. To implement home rule, a bill would have to make its way through British Parliament. After the first one was introduced in 1886, it would take over 30 years before one would be successful in this trip. The first bill, introduced by Prime Minister Gladstone, would be defeated after his own party split its vote in the Commons. In 1893, another attempt was made. This one would make it through the Commons, but would then be defeated in the House of Lords. The House of Lords, due to the nature of its members at this time, was seen as an almost immovable blocker to any home rule legislation. It was generally accepted by everybody that the Lords would just veto any version of a home rule bill that actually provided for home rule. Then in 1910, this would change due to almost completely unrelated political maneuverings. Without diving too deep into British political history, in 1909, the Liberal Party won the elections in what I've seen described as a landslide. They wanted to implement some pretty wide-ranging reforms, but the House of Lords were far more conservative, and so they blocked many of these items. Eventually, the Lords would reject what Prime Minister Asquith called the People's Budget, and this would cause Asquith to get the king to threaten to create enough new peers to be placed in the House of Lords that would overrule its protests. With such a direct threat to their power, the Lords eventually passed the budget. After the budget crisis was over, the Parliament Act of 1911 was then introduced. This act would clarify the relationship between the House of Lords and the House of Commons, and most importantly for our story today, it would remove the Lords' veto power. The most that they could do was delay legislation, but not indefinitely. The passage of this bill represented a big win for Asquith, and I guess power for the House of Commons. But during 1911, he would lose his majority in those Commons. The reduction in his party caused him to turn to the Irish Parliamentary Party, or IPP, to regain the majority. The IPP was at this point by far the most popular party in the 26 counties of Ireland that would eventually make up the Republic of Ireland. They represented the nationalist vote in Ireland, and they wanted a home rule bill. And now that they were providing the support that kept Asquith in his position as Prime Minister, they were now also in a position to demand it. The greatest impediment to previous home rule attempts, the House of Lords, no longer had the ability to block it. These developments, while welcomed in the South, were becoming very concerning to one group in Ireland, the Unionists in the North. At this point in history, the partition of Ireland, which would eventually take place, was not being discussed, and the home rule that was on the table would apply to the whole of Ireland. This was greatly concerning to the Unionists, who were mostly Protestant and were strongly against any form of home rule that put them under the control of the Catholic majority in the South. In November 1910, not long before the IPP would start taking advantage of its new political position, the Ulster Unionist Council began to plan not just for the political resistance to home rule, but armed resistance as well. They would begin to import weapons, and they would create the Ulster Volunteer Army, or UVA. This situation would continue, with tensions rising for almost two years, while the Unionists prepared their resistance to the ever-increasing inevitability of home rule. Then, in September 1912, during a celebration called Ulster Day, they revealed Ulster's Solemn League and Covenant, and it included this. 
quote, being convinced in our conscience that home rule would be disastrous to the material well-being of Ulster, as well as to the whole of Ireland, subversive to our civil and religious freedom, destructive of our citizenship, and perilous to the unity of the empire, we, whose names are underwritten, men of Ulster, loyal subjects of his gracious majesty, King George V, humbly replying on the God whom our fathers in days of stress and trial confidently trusted, do hereby pledge ourselves and our children our cherished position of equal citizenship in the United Kingdom, and in using all means which may be found necessary to defeat the present conspiracy to set up a home rule parliament in Ireland, and the, in the event of such a parliament being forced upon us, we further solemnly and mutually pledge ourselves to refuse to recognize its authority, in the sure confidence that God will defend the right we hereto subscribe our names, and further, we individually declare that we have not already signed this covenant. End quote. The covenant would gain 237,000 male signatures, and a similar declaration would get 234,000 female signatures. The wording was unambiguous. The counties in the north would resist any attempt to place them under the control of an Irish parliament. Meanwhile, the IPP and the Irish nationalists in the south were once again pushing for you guessed it, home rule and an Irish parliament. Importantly for the Ulster leaders, they still had strong support in the government in London, and this was enough to prevent, at least for some time, the passage of the Home Rule Bill, but it was not enough to get it amended to maybe exclude Ulster. During these discussions in 1913, this exclusion or partition was first discussed seriously, which would allow the northern counties to stay in the United Kingdom while the rest were given home rule. However, it would not be included in the Home Rule Bill that was passed through the Commons on January 16, 1913. The Lords immediately rejected it, but now this rejection was not a veto, but instead just a delay. This period of delay would be used by the Ulster leaders to begin seriously recruiting and arming the Ulster Volunteer Force. Retired British Army officers were hired to train the men, and weapons were imported into the country by the thousands. Eventually, these imports would be banned, but not until December 1913. The UVF would eventually number about 100,000 men, and many would end up participating in the First World War. For example, the 36th Ulster Division would fight on the first day of the Somme. It would be made up of largely UVF men. The increasing radicalization of the North prompted concern and protest by the leaders in the South. They protested that the British leaders had, if not encouraged, at least allowed the Northern leaders to create an illegal armed militia. This prompted the Nationalists to then bolster the strength of their own local armed illegal militias, which would be critical in the later fighting in the South. Now, all of these movements, discussions, and even the implementation of Home Rule was put on hold for the war. Now, in 1914, everybody assumed that the war would be short, but as weeks turned into months, turned into years, and the war continued, tensions in Ireland continued to rise. And this then mixed with another trend in Ireland, especially in the southern counties, where by and large, a lot of the people, a lot of the Irish nationalists, were, coming more, were becoming more and more radicalized. The IPP had represented Irish nationalists and Irish Republican ideals for generations, but by the time of the Home Rule debates in 1913, they had already begun to lose support among some groups within Ireland. The problem was that the IPP insisted on working with the British in good faith, and this caused many of the more radical thinkers to believe that the IPP was fatally compromised and would be unable to enact real change. 
This caused a growing tide of those more radical members to break ranks, eventually leading to the resurrection of Sinn Féin. As the support for the IPP waned during the war years, Sinn Féin would gather more and more people to its cause. A key piece of the Sinn Féin policy was to try and unite as many nationalist groups as possible uh, to oppose British rule. Then, and only then, the precise nature of future Irish independence could be determined. This allowed the party to unite more traditional nationalist Republicans with other groups with far more radical views on what future Irish government should look like. One important feature of Irish political maneuvering at this point was that the volunteers that had been created to meet the threat of the UVF were not really directly controlled by any political group. They instead answered really to no one, just themselves. There were often disagreements, even among the leaders of Sinn Féin, about the best path forward, with some leaders breaking from the generally accepted plan resulting in actions like the Rising in 1916. The Rising was discussed in episodes 81 to 83, uh, remarkable three years ago for, for this podcast, but the Rising was an armed revolt in Dublin which sought to create an Irish Republic by force by first capturing important buildings in Dublin, proclaiming a republic, and then spreading the uprising to the countryside. It would be unsuccessful, most of its leaders would be killed, but it made clear to both the Irish and the British that they were radical groups in Ireland that were more than willing to take matters into their own hands. The rise in power for Sinn Féin and then events like the Rising were problematic for the IPP, but the final nail in the coffin would come in 1918. In April, due to the casualties suffered during the German Spring Offensives, Lloyd George proposed extending the Military Service Act, or conscription, to Ireland. The IPP would leave the government in protest, and it united with Sinn Féin in opposition to any form of conscription. De Valera, the leader of Sinn Féin and the most senior survivor of the Rising, created an anti-conscription pledge, which would be signed by two million people. Eventually, the government in London would decide not to push forward with Irish conscription, but by that point the damage had already been done. By threatening to introduce such an unpopular measure, they had united the Irish nationalists not behind the far more moderate views of the IPP, but the far more radical views of Sinn Féin. With this new support, they would move forward with their vision of the future. After the First World War was over, an election would be held in December. This would later be called the Khaki Election, and it would be the first election which would include universal male suffrage and the right to vote for women over the age of 30. In Ireland, this increased the number of voters from 700,000 to 2 million, and these voters almost completely removed the IPP from power. The IPP would only get a total of six parliamentary seats, uh, but four of those would be in Ulster, where the IPP and Sinn Féin agreed that only the IPP candidate would run to prevent the possibility of splitting the vote and allowing the seat to be taken by unionists. With their leadership of the Irish nationalism confirmed, Sinn Féin uh, continued their long-held policy of abstention from the House of Commons by simply not sending any of its members to London. Instead of attending the government in London, they would instead create the Dáil Éireann, the Assembly of Ireland. The Dáil would be the official leaders of the Irish nationalists during the coming period of conflict with the British, but they would have some problems asserting their control. They would only meet infrequently and only under the greatest secrecy. 
The doll would always have problems controlling the volunteers or the IRA, and during the fighting with the British, they would only loosely control the military side of the independence movement. This division between the political leadership and the generally more radical military groups would sow the seeds for later disagreements and fighting. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. The corporate world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job or your title. As former corporate executives, we know firsthand that navigating corporate waters is not easy. My family doesn't come from corporate backgrounds, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. I wish people would be able to understand in this corporate world that talking about things that don't work or identifying problems does not mean you're a problem. We'll dive deep into what happens behind fancy corporate doors or Zoom backgrounds or whatever. Are they really performance improvement plans or just a legal tool to get rid of people? (laughs) I know a lot of people have been saved because of them. We've created a show to help you navigate tricky corporate situations based on research and real life experience. I have really good advice. Don't go to a strip club with your team. (laughs) Listen to the Ambie Award nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. While the failure of the political leaders to control the military would be a problem eventually, in early 1919 it was probably what allowed the Dahl and the IRA to continue to exist. The almost entirely decentralized nature of the fighting made it difficult for the British to retain control. The fighting would begin on January 21, 1919, when two members of the Volunteers in Tipperary killed two members of the Royal Irish Constabulary, or or RIC. They would begin almost two and a half years of fighting. During 1919, this fighting would be very scattered around the country. It was mostly up to the local volunteer commander to prompt their local groups into action. This meant in some areas, even those that strongly supported Sinn Féin, they might be relatively peaceful, while others would see almost continuous fighting. The lack of any kind of unified action made it difficult for the Irish leaders to drastically change the situation, but it also made them unpredictable. Communication between groups spread out all over Ireland was challenging, and would only become more challenging as the British strength on the island increased, and this meant that local leaders and the leaders in the Dáil often had no idea what was happening outside of their area of control. For the Dáil, this was Dublin and its surroundings. During the early stages of the fighting, most of the action revolved around rural barracks of the RIC. These attacks were made to reduce RIC power and to capture arms and munitions. They generally resulted in the RIC abandoning the barracks and retreating to larger cities. To answer these attacks, during January, from January to September 1919, over 5,500 raids by the police and accompanying military units into private residences all over Ireland were launched, and this would be just the beginning 
While 1919 had been the year when the violence started in Ireland, during 1920 it would escalate rapidly. The government in London knew that it had to do something about the fact that Ireland was, essentially, an armed rebellion against British rule. However, it did not just want to send in large units of the British army due to concerns about the lack of popular support for such a move, or support within the army. They therefore created groups of volunteers, which were officially added to the RIC forces. These units were given dark green tunics, which were worn by the RIC, but then were given army khaki trousers, resulting in them being given the name the Black and Tans. They were generally sent to the areas of greatest violence, and they built up a reputation for meeting this violence with more of their own. They were known for their reprisals in many areas that saw large IRA actions. For example, in early November, a group of IRA soldiers ejected the police from the city of Balanali for a week. When the town was recaptured, units of the Black and Tans burnt it to the ground. The violence during 1920 would come to a crescendo on November 21st. It would be on this day that an IRA unit led by Michael Collins would assassinate 14 men known as the Cairo Gang, who were informants to the British authorities. In response to these killings, a unit of the Black and Tans opened fire on a crowd at a Gaelic football match in Dublin. Twelve people were killed, including some kids. The events of November 21st would be a serious blow to British power in Ireland. The Cairo gang actually had been an important intelligence asset, and the public killing of so many civilians was a public relations disaster. While 1920 had been a year of ever-increasing violence, early 1921 would represent the turning point in the conflict. The number of raids by IRA units around Ireland was greatly reduced as the British presence continued to consolidate into fewer, albeit much stronger, positions. The power of the IRA was also reduced due to some mistakes that were made during this period. For example, in May, an attack was made on the Customs House in Dublin, which was the headquarters of the local government. These headquarters would be successfully burned by the IRA, but they would not make a clean getaway, and they would instead be caught in a shootout by a unit of auxiliaries, which were units of militia which had an even more sinister reputation than the Black and Tans. This attack on the Customs House greatly weakened IRA presence in Dublin, with over 100 men either killed or captured. It would also prove to be the last major incident of the war, because there was already growing support on all sides for peace. On the British side, there was the matter of the costs of continuing the fighting. This cost was in the form of monetary expenditures, which were over £20 million a year, at a time when the British government was doing everything it could to cut costs. But there was also the political costs. The events in Ireland were very unpopular in the home islands, and in British possessions around the world. There was also growing support for an end to the violence on the Irish side. After so many months of fighting, the IRA was simply running out of weapons, munitions, and men. By this point, there were over 4,000 IRA men interned in prisoner camps. A thousand were in actual prisons. And while estimates of the number of men still available to them and in the summer of 1921 varies drastically, it probably wasn't more than a few thousand. With the possibility of peace growing, De Valera and Sir James Craig, the leader of the Ulster Unionists, would meet secretly in May to discuss a truce. It would take several months for the truce to actually become a reality, but it would be signed on July 11, 1921. While this truce would be the end of direct violence against the British, it would represent the beginning of breaks in the Irish coalition. 
The most important internal conflict was between the Dáil, led by de Valera, and the IRA, who resisted any attempt by political leaders to take control, and the most radical members of both, who believed that any negotiations with the British represented a betrayal of their beliefs. While the fighting in the South had been ongoing, in March 1920 the Government of Ireland Bill had been passed in Parliament. This contained many of the provisions of the previous Home Rule Bill from before the war that had been delayed, but it also contained a provision for partition. Due to Sinn Féin's abstention policies, they had played no part in the creation of this new bill, and had never fully accepted it, and it would never be fully accepted in the South. However, it represented a big win in the eyes of northern political leaders. It would officially create a new Northern Ireland province, which would be established within the United Kingdom on, in May 1921. This created Northern Ireland, mostly as it exists today, and at the time it was specifically crafted to ensure the dominance of specific groups that the Ulster Unionists wanted to be in control. For example, some counties like Kevin, McGonaghan, and Donegal, with strong Protestant Unionist populations, were excluded due to fears that a large number of Catholic nationalists would upset Unionist political control. The passage of acceptance of the Ireland Bill in 1920 was important because it set a starting point for future negotiations between the Irish leaders and the British government. It was also not implemented without some violence. This violence would begin with Protestant mobs who attacked Catholic groups. They may not have been officially supported by local governments and the police, but they cert certainly weren't properly punished. In response to this violence, the IRA would ramp up its actions in the North. Instead of reducing this violence, the truce in the South would then cause it to escalate. During 1921 in Belfast, 109 people would be killed due to the violence on both sides. But just in February 1922, 44 would be killed, including six children in a bombing. And then in March, the total grew to 61. That's just in one month. This would prompt Craig to push for the Special Powers Act of 1922, which implemented several changes that combined sound to me a lot like martial law. The government was given powers to arrest and detain indefinitely without trial. Summary courts were created with the powers to enact death penalties. This act would seem to inflame tensions even more, and it would only begin to dissipate when the Civil War broke out in the South. The Civil War would reduce the support that the Northern IRA was receiving from the South, who were busy fighting among themselves. The reduction in violence in the North continued until it reached something that looked mostly like peace in 1923. While the violence in the North escalated after the truce was signed, in Dublin and in London, serious discussions were underway about what a permanent peace between Ireland and the United Kingdom would look like. These discussions would begin just one week after the truce was signed, when de Valera would travel to London to talk with Lloyd George. Coming into these discussions, both sides had different views about what a post-treaty Ireland would look like. Lloyd George would open with the offer that Ireland would be made into a dominion, in a setup that would have looked a lot like those that were already in place with Canada and Australia. De Valera, with the support of other Irish leaders, wanted an Irish Republic that had even more freedom of action. He was still supportive of some kind of association with the British Empire, but he did not want Ireland to be a part of it. A critical point of division between the two sides of this debate was the presence of the Oath of Allegiance to the King. Now, this was a critical part of the concept of being a dominion, but was strongly opposed by many Irish Republicans. 
While the exact nature of Irish home rule would be debated during the negotiations, there was also the matter of the partition. Overall, both sides ended up mostly just accepting that the partition existed and that it would be a real challenge to change that. The British, and especially Lloyd George, were adamant that the negotiations would only continue if they were done under the assumption that Northern Ireland existed and would continue to exist. Even in the South, there was a growing recognition that, at least in the short term, it might be better for the future of Free Ireland for the 26 counties to be the priority, not unity. De Valera's official position, which would be generally accepted by most Irish Republican leaders at the time, and by the British as well, was that once home rule uh, in Ireland was a fact, the counties should then be given the power to choose if they wanted to remain in the Irish state or not. He did not believe that any coercion of the North, either militarily by the South or politically from London, was conducive to a stable Irish state in the future. Craig and the other Northern leaders, for their part, fully supported any agreement between London and Dublin, as long as it did not change the position of Northern Ireland as part of the United Kingdom. While the discussions between de Valera and Lloyd George had went reasonably well, the real negotiation would only begin later, when the primary members of the negotiating team that was sent to London from Dublin was constructed to try and represent the different groups of the Irish coalition. The team would be led by Arthur Griffith, who at the time was serving as the Irish foreign minister. He also had strong support among many of the more moderate Sinn Féin leaders. He would be joined by Michael Collins, who was by far the most respected and influential leader of the IRA at this point in time. Finally, there were also members who represented other interests, including those of de Valera. But as soon as the delegation arrived in London, the British focused their attention almost exclusively on Griffith and Collins, and almost all of the most important conversations would occur with just these two Irish representatives. As soon as he was asked to attend, Collins became concerned that de Valera was trying to use the members of the negotiating team as scapegoats. It was clear that compromises would have to be made, compromises that were sure to be unpopular among at least some Irish people. This feeling of distrust between Collins and to a lesser extent Griffith and de Valera would cause de Valera's representatives to be purposefully sidelined, and after just a few meetings, Collins and Griffith suggested that meetings should only occur between the two of them and the British. The British negotiations were led by Lloyd George, and right from the start he went back to his offer of Dominion status. To try and gain acceptance for this, he even suggested that perhaps some of the primarily Catholic areas on the edges of Northern Ireland could be removed from the control of Ulster. Obviously, this was not acceptable to Craig and the other Northern Ireland leaders. Craig was adamant that no changes should be made to the previous arrangements for the North. The most that he would possibly accept was a boundary commission, which would be held after the treaty was signed and would handle moving the border perhaps a bit one way or another, but would take place fully under the assumption that Northern Ireland would continue to exist. Now, this idea was accepted in principle by Griffith, but the details were never really worked out. By the first week of December 1921, the basics of the treaty had been established. Dominion status, Northern Ireland would be excluded, a few smaller details, and then there would be that oath of an allegiance to the king. With these items outlined, the Irish delegation returned to Dublin to discuss the treaty draft with the Dáil and other Irish leaders. 
When the delegations reconvened in London on December 5th, Lloyd George strongly pushed for the treaty to be signed immediately. Griffith, who had received instructions in Dublin to push for some changes, especially around the precise status and relationship with Northern Ireland and the exact wording of the Oath of Allegiance, wanted to do some more negotiation. He would eventually agree to the oath as suggested by the British, but only if Northern Ireland was included. Now, Lloyd George, instead, just brought back up the idea of the Boundary Commission, which Griffith had previously agreed to. He even brought out the official note that Griffith had signed during earlier negotiations, accepting the commission in principle. Lloyd George then accused Griffith of dishonorably altering his position. Earlier, he had said that, you know, Northern Ireland was just fine, we just have to work out the details. But now he was coming back and saying that he didn't want it to exist. He then threatened to resume the war if the Irish delegation did not immediately sign the treaty. Griffith and Collins both believing that they had achieved probably the best deal possible, and it probably was, signed the treaty on December 5th, 1921. We will discuss the treaty's contents next episode, at which point we will also discuss how it was received in Ireland, which for the most part just depended on who you talked to. I pick a dilly, farewell, 